0: Welcome to the diversity and inclusion on air podcast. This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical Colleges diversity matters initiative. This podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AABMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions, as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Lisa Greenhill and I'm the senior director for institutional research and diversity at the Association of American Veterinary Medical Colleges. So I'm very excited. Today's show is on diversity and research and veterinary research. I am really excited about my three guests today. We have Ms. Evie Marie Prado from Virginia, Maryland Regional College of Veterinary Medicine, Dr. Gary Adams from Texas A&M University, and Dr. Tiffany Lyle from Purdue University in Indiana. Welcome, everybody. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hello. Hi. Hi. So, um, so as is our custom, before we dive into our topic, um, I'm going to ask each of you to give us a little bit about your background and kind of what led you to um, this moment uh, in veterinary medicine um, and your interest in veterinary research. So, um, Evie Marie, why don't we start with you?
1: Okay, so my name is Amy Marie Perala Sanchez. I'm originally from Puerto Rico. I'm a second year at the Virginia Maryland College of Veterinary Medicine here in Blacksburg, Virginia. I am uh, what we call the public corporate tracker. So I am interested in government and research medicine. um, And currently I am taking classes on epidemiology and doing research
0: on brucellosis. Oh, great. (laughs) Awesome. So, brucellosis, Dr. Adams, why don't you go next? Because I know that that's that's kind of right up your alley, isn't it?
2: Yes, that's a great subject. Hi, my name is Gary Adams. I'm a professor here at Texas A&M University. And um, my interest in research began actually while I was working with a veterinarian before I ever entered veterinary school. He was conducting research on um, cancer in the eye of cattle. So I became interested in that. Then as I was a veterinary student, I also had the opportunity to do research and uh, that further made me a lot of interest to pursue research as a career. So I've done that and that's really been interesting. I'm still engaged in research and still enjoy it.
0: All right. Uh, Dr. Adams also did not mention that he's the former associate dean of research at Texas A&M, so uh, gotta give gotta give that a shout out there. Well, his
2: administration, uh, which I worked in the administration, really enjoyed that. I'd have to say, as much as I enjoyed that, I still like the research on the bench and working with students, graduate students, and veterinary students the most. That's still the most fun
0: awesome so a welcome and uh last but certainly not least dr lyle welcome thank you i am
3: an assistant professor of veterinary pathology here at purdue university and just to give you a little bit about my pathway here um atlanta and indianapolis are actually both home for me but i went to vet school and undergrad at the university of georgia and i got into um, research actually as an undergrad I was um, I joined a research lab actually as a freshman in undergrad looking at um, at uh, yeast mating pathways, actually in a biochemistry lab, and had a great mentor there who um, really fostered my passion of veterinary medicine and helped me to um, link up with others in the vet school there. I was able to continue doing research as a veterinary student and um, really, really um, got engaged in pathology due to, the uh, again, great mentors I had. Um, in the pathology department. And then from um, vet school at UGA, I went on to do a residency in anatomic pathology at Purdue, where um, actually I became very, very interested in metastasis and the way that um, the metastatic niche occurs and the different environments and that cancer cells actually grow in different tumors. So from my residency, I um, did my PhD in collaboration with the National Cancer Institute in the Comparative Biomedical Scientist Training Program, which is a graduate partnership program with Purdue um, and the NCI. And while I was there, I studied um, changes to the blood-brain barrier, and the blood-brain barrier protects the brain, protects it from um, any sort of uh, negative molecules in circulation and how it's changed in um, metastasis from cancer. Um, so, from that lab and my research there, I was still maintaining my interest in the blood brain barrier and those changes. And um, now, in my position at Purdue, I uh, lead a lab focused on changes to the blood brain barrier, focused on many different cancers, but right now we're looking at changes in lung cancer.
0: Very, very cool. So, I'm really excited um, to have the three of you kind of looking at this kind of pipeline um, of. Uh, uh, diversity and research and kind of thinking about um, all of these different kinds of steps. So to kind of frame our conversation a bit mm-hmm. for today, um, I was taking a look at some of our um, data that we collect on um, research faculty. So um, one of the interesting things that I noted was that in the last five years or so, we've seen this particular group of faculty, our research, um, non-clinical track research faculty, has grown by about 6%. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's really... Interesting because the number of women in this particular area is growing. Um, Right now, we have kind of relative gender parity among the research faculty across um, all of the U.S. institutions, Um, and the growth of women in research among research faculty um, is second only to the growth that we're seeing um, among administrators. So that's kind of cool with the gender piece, right? but what we also are seeing is that the percentage of racially and ethnically underrepresented faculty on the research track has dropped um, pretty dramatically in the last five years or so. Um, at one point, we were just under 25%, and now we're at um, about 15%. Um, it's unclear really why that might be the case. So we can talk about one, some of the reasons why. Um, is it that faculty are kind of moving on outside of academia? Is there Are there less funds? Um, what's kind of really happening with our um, racial and ethnic diversity with respect to research um, track faculty within veterinary medicine. So so I kind of wanted to talk a little bit, though, about kind of what got you hooked. Um, And so, uh, Tiffany, you talked a little bit about your interest in metastasis and then this blood-brain barrier and lung cancer and all of these kinds of things, but really kind of did when was the moment that you knew you wanted to do research was there like a oh, moment um where you said yeah this is this is this is my thing
3: you know it it was truly truly really gradual so I actually fought it a lot actually um while I was in undergrad and also in vet school I I still often found myself in um, various research environments but the thing that I really learned again through uh, mentorship was to ask, how to ask scientific questions. So I think that that's often um, a barrier in a research environment because research is challenging. But the thing that you have to learn how to do is to really ask questions to number one, interpret the data that you've produced, and two, to to push your research down further into the next step. So that you're not just bogged down in the, well, this experiment didn't work. But well, well, why didn't it work? And what, and what does it mean that it didn't work? I mean, so negative data shouldn't necessarily always be trash and shouldn't always be, um, you know, said that, well, I'm not good at this. I, I think that developing that skill of asking scientific questions is really critical. And that takes time. Um, and it certainly takes, um, encouragement in the research environment. And, um, I was thankful to again have had that in, um, vet school and also in my, um, residency and PhD. I was just always engaged in a research question, even in the diagnostic setting. Um, I was always engaged in looking at, um, my, whatever situation I was in from a, uh, from a research approach, um, which made it really natural for me to enter into where I am.
0: Right, So we have this kind of evolution. Um, so, so, Gary, was it also an evolution or did you have an aha moment?
2: Oh, yeah, sure. Actually, I began the research while I was in high school because uh, where I grew up in the western part of Texas, um, right on the border with Mexico, I actually grew up as a minority in my high school. Uh, I worked with a scientist there who was engaged with toxic plants. In our part of the state, it's a desert. And animals eat toxic plants, and they become very ill. So I worked, collaborated with him while I was in high school, and then with uh, Dr. Edwards uh, to do my practical part of working in veterinary medicine on uh, ocular squamous cell carcinoma. Our collaboration actually was with M.D. Anderson in Houston, and so we had scientists there that we worked with. So I followed that through all the way into the College of Veterinary Medicine here, and I would say when I encountered veterinary pathology, I was hooked. We had a fantastic instructor at that time who was just a spellbinding teacher. And so I knew then that I wanted to go ahead and study veterinary pathology. That was a turning moment for me. So I did. I finished my veterinary degree, then did my Ph.D. and my um, board certification, passed my boards. But all during that, like Tiffany, I was doing research at every one of those steps. While I was a veterinary student, I worked in several labs. Then I was able to do a research course on my PhD and then even while I was doing uh, anatomic pathology and passing the board certification in the American College of Atomic Pathologists, I was also conducting research and publishing papers. And So that's followed through the rest of my career. I was always interested in vector borne diseases. So I spent uh, about 10 years working in South America and in Africa, Europe and Canada. In my career and worked with uh, a lot of pathogens in different areas uh, like we do now. So every time I worked in one of those different places in the world, I always interacted with uh, students locally that were really, really bright. And uh, that came from various cultures and backgrounds and languages and religious settings as well. And all of that to me integrated In my laboratory, as as I've established my own laboratory over the years, this is my 50th year on the faculty, and I've been uh, in research the whole time. I've always wanted a highly um, integrated laboratory from multiple cultures, multiple national areas, so that we would have um, thinking that was different to focus on the hypothesis that we were testing. And as Tiffany stated. The first thing is to generate a really testable hypothesis that's approachable in you know, will funds, reagents, supplies, equipment, et cetera, to be able to approach the problem. So a lot of my work was driven uh, by the understanding of the host pathogen interface. As I looked at the tissues and did diagnostic pathology, how did this occur? It's so like Tiffany's question about metastasis of uh, neoplasms. How did this occur? It's because these lesions, while they might not sound very interesting to anyone else, to me are magnificent portrayals of how the host is responding to whatever the challenge is. In my case, uh, pathogens such as buceano, tuberculosis, and, and so on. So that is sort of my story. I've never lost that interest. I'm in the, in the laboratory today. I'm still in my office after 50 years. Still like this interaction with research. I can't give it up. Although my wife Jerry and and Lisa knows, sometimes I think she'd like for me to put a little more things things in. But I I can't. I can't give this up. I'm still spellbound by pursuing a hypothesis, either myself or with my students. I've had about sixty PhDs in my laboratory over the years, and what I've if there's any legacy in my career, it will be the students, my graduate students, who finished. And so uh, I, I can't give this up. I'm still, from my high school days, and you know, working with uh, toxic plants and sheep and in goats, till now working with pathogens. I'm just as entranced at this time as I was then.
0: So, um, I have to tell a little story about, um, um, Evie. so last fall I was at the, uh, society for advancement of Chicanos and native Americans in science meeting. And, um, lo and behold, this young woman kind of comes up to me very excitedly and saying, Oh my goodness, the veterinarians are here. Of <laughs> course, everyone knows I'm not a veterinarian. I just kind of play one on the podcast. Right. And so, <laughs> and so um, out of 4,000 plus attendees at this meeting um, for um, individuals, um, of, of Hispanic and, and um, indigenous individuals in the U.S. that are really kind of focused on STEM disciplines, there was one veterinary student just one giving a poster presentation on her um project from her summer scholars session last summer and it was evie marie so (laughs) um as i was telling our guests earlier um we've been besties ever since and so um i was really excited um to to have her um participate so so evie you know, did you did you know in advance? I know that you mentioned earlier that you're in the dual degree program. Um did you mention in advance? Um did you know in advance that you wanted to do research? Um or is this your plan or did you have an aha moment? Did somebody have an aha moment?
1: <laughs> so I I guess I'm the, the black sheep in this case. So I did have an aha moment. Um I participated I was lucky enough to participate in like summer semester programs for research when they were trying to introduce students to research in high school, but none of the research projects had to do with veterinary medicine, so I was doing them because I didn't want to be home on a Saturday, so I was like, okay, I'll try this route, and um, I think when I got into my undergrad in the University of Puerto Rico, I... I looked at my professors and none of my professors were also veterinarians. They were all animal scientists. So I was like, well, if I want to find a place for a veterinarian where a possible veterinarian student, I might as well talk to them. I talked to one of my professors that did research in genetics. They were trying to map the genome of uh, endangered species. And I was like, can I just join your lab and see what, what is this all about? And he's like, sure. Um, and that led to many other things. Um, and it wasn't until I actually did research um, with a veterinary PhD, PhD um, that I was like, oh, my God, this is actually possible. Like, I can be a DVM and PhD. Like, it's, this is a dream. And I knew from the get-go, I did not want to work in clinical medicine in the sense of, like, being with cats and dogs all the day, I I knew from, I knew that I needed to do something else. And when I discovered this person um, from Michigan State, Dr. Barry Olivier, I was like, oh my God, you're my idol. Um, and I stuck to him like glue. <laughs> and when I got to Virginia, Maryland, um, I thought that now but medicine was gonna take over and I wasn't gonna be able to go and do research. And it wasn't the case when I got accepted into the summer program, I saw that I could still do it and still be able to, you know, take my clinical classes. And it's been going well ever since. I am a dual degree, but I'm not PhD yet. I think I want to take a break after med school, enough studying for four years and then con- consider a PhD, but in now that I'm in veterinary medicine, I've just been able to discover all the other kind of little niches of research that I can apply myself to, and I'm looking into those right now.
0: Oh, great. So, so Gary, you have to hang around a few more years. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm not planning to hang
2: any Don't worry. <laughs> we have a lot of work going on that we want to follow through on vaccines, uh, against brucellosis and valley fever, African swine fever, hog cholera. So we've got a lot of work <laughs> going on. We're not going to stop. No, no, no.
0: <laughs> so um, each of you have a common theme um, that that you mentioned either at length or or briefly, and that was the role of a mentor. And um, um, and that is a really important piece in terms of thinking about exposing young people to careers and research, but also kind of helping to sustain them and to encourage them along the way. And so, um, you know, I, I think that, um, Gary, with 60 PhD students, <laughs> I think you have a lot of experience. And if 60 60 have come through the lab and, and completed, then um, it seems that you have a, you've got a good track record on this. So tell me, what is, a, um, you know, what kinds of things do students um, and prospective students who are interested in careers in veterinary medicine um, need to know about kind of finding a mentor um, and and kind of thinking about um, the importance of having um, diversity in mentors, but also kind of um, mentoring across diversity as well?
2: I, I think um, the main responsibility that we have as mentors is to Help the student identify what their interest really is. Because the work that we do is really about engagement for a lifetime. So whatever it is a student would like to do, help them discover that in an independent way to allow them to find the area they want to work in. One way to do that is to rotate through several laboratories if you have an opportunity. I would say at least four laboratories if the student has an opportunity, because the lab culture differs. It's variable from lab to lab. Find the area of interest, find a laboratory that fits your lifestyle and your way you want to work. Then find the area of work that you want to do and then help, if you have a good mentor, that mentor will help you discover your own hypothesis. To be given the hypothesis is, Is not the right way to pursue graduate work, master's or PhD level. So I feel like the main, um, my main work is to assist the student to discover their own hypothesis. Once they own that hypothesis, it's part of their life and they will pursue that hypothesis to the end. And that means uh, writing uh, grant proposals and publishing work and being a part of the whole program. Now that's done in the context of the entire laboratory, the laboratory culture network. And in my laboratory, we work as a team, always. There's not an independent person in the corner of the lab doing their own thing. We will work as a team. And if we can't work as a team, and I tell this day one to my students as they come in, if you cannot work as a team member, you probably need to go to another laboratory where you can be comfortable. Because we will work as a team, We'll cut across several cultures, several backgrounds, several different kinds of thinking. And in the end, what I see after these years is a development of a network. Once they finish, they're all joined together into, in a network across the world, most of them having interactions with one another the rest of their lives and doing their own experiments. Uh, it's something that they discovered in the laboratory. So and that's what I feel is my role. As they say, the chairman of the graduate committee or serving on other graduate committees is to help the student discover what they really are interested in, and then then their own hypothesis. Then you can't you can't keep them away from that. They will pursue that to the end.
3: The networking um, component is just um, so important. Building the network within the lab, but also um, for students to understand that. You know they can build a network in the community that they're already in um, as as graduate students or as veterinary students or even as undergrads. I mean simply to go beyond um, the walls of their vet school or their lab to get to know what the other investigators are doing by simply attending seminars that may take, and again these scientific questions um, or just simply to know what other techniques others are using that may help your research I mean. Time and time again, I find myself, um, just coming upon, um, you know, another component of, of my network that, that really helps and influences my research. And I think also, um, with the mentorship that I've, um, learned just reflecting back on, um, my career and, um, and academics so far is that there are different mentors that are helpful for different things. Um, of course, usually your primary mentor is, of course, helpful in designing that um, graduate thesis and how, how that how that um, component may work, but also in thinking about, you know, what your entire career may look like. I mean, getting feedback from multiple people is so I found that so important for me, um, like I said, from my mentor beginning and an undergraduate through um, through through where I am today as an, as an um, early career academic. So I, I think still have multiple mentors in that area. Go
1: ahead. I oh, was sorry, Dr. Definitely. So I think, um, from a student's perspective, what I've seen is that I have been able to find all these different mentors like you said essentially by talking to them and having that research question in my head and i think you can have um another thing that i learned is like your mentor doesn't have to be a DBM phd i I learned that i had a mentor that was a computer engineering phd (laughs) and the reason is because each of them do bring something different to the table and um as a student and telling other students, I'll be like, just go talk to them. They won't bite you. They won't eat you. The lab won't close the door on you. Um, if it's a BSL too, make sure you wear your lab coat, but they will always be there. Um, for me, it was more of, uh, I started with this mentor for Michigan State. And now that I'm in vet school, I started looking for another mentor because I knew I was farther away and I ended up finding another one that is a completely different field that now I'm interested in. I just, I feel like we should emphasize the students, the point of our, our labs in case of both of your lab doctors are open. So if they really have those questions, they can just go search you out.
3: And one other thing I'd like to add is that um, one thing that veterinary students often take for granted is so much that they bring to the research table. Yes. Um, <laughs> And oftentimes it may not be intuitive, just because as a veterinary student, you're learning so gaining so much knowledge so quickly um, that sometimes you need, you know, someone else's input who's been in the field a lot longer than you have to kind of, you know, give you some some tips and hints on what what you bring to the research table and how you can also um, get research moving forward quickly. And I think that that's also a really really important part of mentorship and of retaining um people in veterinary research is for them to know what tools they're bringing to the to the research
2: table absolutely i, I think uh, something i might just add if i could if i might uh lisa is i could not agree more with Tiffany and with definitely about the interaction and and um, across wherever you're working to interact with others i cannot in, enforce that anymore Science today, at the level that it's done, is usually collaborative in nature, And um, one person cannot have all techniques, all possibilities, do all of the work. And so that very team-oriented approach of interaction across several areas is very important. In our school, we fortunately have a graduate student association, and they're highly active. They're solving problems themselves. And then there's a postdoc group as well. Of course, Dr. Wilson they're interacting at their own level, solving a lot of their own problems, never have to go and talk to their mentor. And they can move forward. They do not have to wait. So that interactive uh, nature of science is very important to them more than if they ever been.
0: Great. Wonderful. So if you are viewing live, please feel free to drop me uh, an email at diversitymatters at aavmc.org if you have a question or comment for our guest, Or you can certainly leave a question or comment on the AAVMC Diversity and Inclusion On Air Facebook page, which I'm updating regularly during the show with great quotes. And clips. I have to um, also take the the, the hosts' um, liberty to say yes, definitely network with people from all, all walks of research. Gary and I have had long, great conversations about what kind of research, veterinary research, is kind of like just kind of defining um, what the definition of research is with respect to veterinary medicine. But but I also have to say that um, during my own graduate um, uh, work, he was. A a wonderful mentor and encourager um so sometimes that 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 mentor role you have different folks for um for for you know different things in your life and he was always so encouraging of kind of having me um bounce questions off of him thinking through some of my own research questions as well as just kind of um giving me an girl <laughs> on the days where i felt like i was clawing <laughs> to the next chapter. So thank you publicly for all you did. My great pleasure. I wish I had more students like you. (laughs) Well thank you. I won't be doing that again though. (laughs) Once enough once enough. Right. So, um, you know, I mentioned that that we've kind of seen, uh, we're seeing a bit of um, gender parity among researchers. And I think that certainly um, part of that is because um, we have so many women coming into the profession now. Right. And so we have um, Uh, this year, 81% of veterinary students are women in the United States. Um, And so, you know, we're going to continue to see women emerge in in various areas, but we still are very much lacking when it comes to students of color um, and students from various racial and ethnic backgrounds. And and, um, we've seen such a, a dramatic decrease in um, the representation of, of people of color and, in research positions at the colleges, um, I'm not really sure, kind of why. I'd be kind of curious to hear any thoughts or hypotheses, if you will, that I can go off and test <laughs> on my own um, about why that might be. What's what's happening at the at the colleges where we're seeing such a decline?
1: I can say from a student's perspective, I think it goes to I think the point mentioned by Dr. Geary is, um, if we don't, if, if we don't promote the generation that is right now um, on vet colleges to kind of show them that they are able to continue in, in a different career path, um, then that's that's when you start lacking, I guess, um, for, for, for a better word. Um, and I think uh, I am grateful in my school that is a different type of curriculum and it is promoted in a certain way, but I do know of my other friends who are in other vet schools and they tell me, oh, it's really hard to do anything different because everything that I'm getting taught is small animal, large animal. I'm not getting taught anything outside the box and um I think something like as simple as a summer research program, which I'm pretty sure almost all vet schools have under the Mary Allen NIH grant, um, can really help the students, can help this generation to see all the different things that you can do with a DBM. And there's where you target your, your diversity. Like there's where you target your underrepresented minors and help them through. Um, getting into vet school is hard enough already, and um, there's not that many of us but when they are then I think schools should take advantage of that and be like well they are here let's let's see what they um what they want and what they want to study and expose them I think the the more important thing is just exposing and that's something that I know from other friends that some schools do not have
3: And one thing I'd like to add, and I think it's um, the reality of our um, profession, is the the weight of student loans. Mm. Uh, I think that the um, financial aspect in in some ways um, can cause people to take a pause and say, you know, I should go, um, you know, and and directly enter the the workforce in in one way or another. And um, because um, programs that do exist that help with Um, Loan repayment may not be as as well advertised or like the um, the federally funded state program if you're working in an academic institution that gives you, you know, 10 years to pay off your loans pay off a 30 year loan, which is extremely effective, the NIH loan repayment program, which um, will probably be in state at least as long as the budget's intact. so I mean, there there are certain pathways that exist, but I don't think that they're as well known as much as the weight of oh no, I have a hundred thousand dollars in student loans that I need to pay off. Sure, sure,
0: sure. Um, I think that the other thing, I mean, it, you know, it 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 takes a long time to create a <laughs> faculty. <laughs> you know, it takes a long time to create one, right? And so, how many? Um, um, how many really are in the pipeline and do those individuals really actually intend on staying in um, academia certainly, um, DVM PhDs are, are probably are, are highly sought after. Certainly, there's corporate opportunities for them in R and D and certainly other um, other opportunities. So we're talking about a, a relatively small pipeline um, and with a pretty long kind of <laughs> creation lifespan. Um, uh, Gary, any any thoughts? Yes, a
2: couple of thoughts, and all to to agree with Evie. In particular, I think that's a very astute observation that she's made, that the encouragement needs to occur early. And uh, that's undergraduate. But after they get into the professional programs, to me, the most stimulating and inspiring instructors and faculty are those who have some research going on. And they will mention some of the, in my case, and in our faculty here, we try to have faculty who have some interaction with research and say, you know, okay, we're going to discuss the anatomy of the eye today. And they have some relation with the research that they're doing. I think there's nothing like that for the, for the student to see basic science is really the foundation of where we start. However, there's application for what you're learning. And you can also do discovery science if you're inspired to do that and provide opportunities and encouragement. I think that just as, as she's wisely pointed out, that's where we begin to bring in all persons, no matter what their background is, to have them enter the, the stream for academic research. Not only for academic research, but also in private enterprise, and in other, in other parts and other avenues for veterinarians. One of the things that we're doing, I think, is to expand the spectrum of activities that veterinarians can do worldwide in many, including research. In my case, I'm highly biased toward research. I don't deny that a bit. That's what I'm about. And that's why I think the future of our profession, to a large degree, depends on our creativity and discovery science for the next generation of products and devices and approaches and understanding uh, host packaging and the environment and how these interact. And I, I think this has to begin early, that's where the inspiration begins. This, and Lisa, as you pointed out, this is a long process. But to me, the whole process is still interesting and the students that I work with, it's about discovering their interest and once they have them they will go on and be productive members, even if they retired to practice. Yeah. Uh, I read biopsies uh, for a long time as a uh, anatomic veterinary pathologist and what I found, those who have inflammation research began doing research in their own clinics, then we would write a paper based on cases that were coming in. And so the interest was there, and I think uh, that's a sort of uh, role that we can play as veterinarians, even in small animal, large animal practice, wherever we're working. The ability to engage in research and discover that is innate in us. I hope we're teaching that, I hope we're inculcating that and inspiring that.
3: Absolutely. That's so important. I, I really um, emphasize to the veterinarians that even if they do go into practice, that they're still doing research when they're looking at one surgical technique versus another and looking at different, um, the healing process and the two different techniques. I mean, that's, I mean, that is a a research question that you're asking and the data that you're, um, curing when you bring, when at each appointment as the patients come back in. I mean, that's so important to, um, for them to approach it in that way so that they are then making, you know, the best decision on which um, procedure is the one to use in the future.
1: I think it's also important to let them know, um, I've seen it um, in different schools that I've been to, is that even clinical trials, they're essentially research. There is an, there's a research question that we're trying to answer. Um, and even though you're a DVM, you, like you're doing this investigation, most of the DVMs don't have a PhD when they do this clinical trials and and they're trying to look into a question using clinical medicine data or evidence-based medicine. And um, I've I've seen how um, there's this this stigma around research and I get this question sometimes they're like, oh, are you stuck in the lab all day? And I'm like, no, I'm not. Granted, I'm working with Brussels but that's different. But um, I know of people in my class that are also interested in research, and they are going to the hospital and they're taking samples. Um, part of my MPH project will deal with methicillin-resistant staphylococcus, so I have to go to the hospital and get samples from animals. So it's essentially um, you every single as long as you have a hypothesis and you're answering that question, you are. Research, and I think it's 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 vital to let veterinary students know that you do have, um, you do have faculty that do this clinical trials, and um, again, just go and talk to them, see how it goes.
0: Yeah. Right. So. So, Evie, I want to ask you, as I as I mentioned at the top of the show, I um, mentioned that we met at the SACNAS um, convention last year. Um, how did you become, how did you come to be the only vet student <laughs> <laughs> and a group of 4,000 STEM students and faculty and researchers, um, you know, doing a, a poster presentation on your summer project?
1: So I learned about SACNAS when I was an undergrad um, through my non-veterinary advisor, Naida. Um, She's a computer engineer. So she told me about SACNAS and she said, your STEM, your science, you can go to this conference. And I was like, okay, sure. Um, So I went to the first one in San Antonio and I remember... I don't know if it was you, Lisa, but I remember meeting some people from the um, ABMC, and I met some people from the AVMA, and I was like, "Well, I want to, I want to do veterinary medicine, but I also want to do research. Can I do both?" And they told me, "Yes, yes, you can." Um, and to make the short, the long story short, I got into vet school, and when I did the summer research program for Virginia Maryland. Um, they sent us to the conference for Mariel. And I was like, I asked my mentor, can I go to another conference? And he was like, sure. I mean, I will be out behind you 100%. And uh, Dr. Ansar Ahmed here in Virginia, Maryland, he told me, well, go for it and see what happens. And I applied to SACNAS because I wanted to come back to SACNAS because I knew that, I had people when I went there that served as an inspiration, and I was like, maybe if I go back, I may be able to do something. And I applied; was fortunate enough to get the grant for the travel and went to California. Never been to the East Coast. The four hours was very confusing to me.
0: West Coast, um, West Coast,
1: West Coast. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um. So going to the West Coast and all that, and um, I. I decided to show off my research because the thing is, I I see how we, and, and I think that's a, a fault of, of how we do research these days, it's like we try to make these conferences more and more and more concentrated to a specific topic. Like I could have gone to a microbiology conference, but why go to a conference that is so focused instead of going to a global one when you can see all the different exposures in science, technology, engineering, and math. And um, that's what I decided to just go to a global one. And I went to SACNAS. I did not know that I was the only vet student presenting. I thought more people were going to go. But it definitely made my school like uh, they were like up in the air because they were like, oh my gosh, she's the only student. She's from our school. And they were really, really excited. And Dr. Um, Ansar Ahmed and Dr. K- Caswell, my mentor, um, they were really excited as well. But I think I noticed how much of that conference made a difference in me when before I started applying to med school. And I thought that why not go back and maybe do the same? Hopefully somebody will be in my shoes at that point.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, so yes, I I, we, I took lots of pictures. Um, um, I think some of those are certainly back on the Facebook page. Um, I was shameless in terms of sending them immediately to the dean, like from my phone while I was there. <laughs> shameless. And so um, it was really great. And it was also really great to kind of see a summer program kind of come full circle um, within a year, right? So you kind of have this project um, that a student worked on during the summer. They go to the symposium. That's great. But then they actually apply to present that um, at another meeting. And it was just a really wonderful um, opportunity to see a student, a veterinary student, kind of taking yet this this next step. The other thing that I kind of want to mention about SACNIS is if you've ever wondered whether or not um, a veterinary meeting, I mean, a research, a hard science STEM research meeting can have, um, um, be culturally relevant and culturally nuanced, this is the meeting to go to. Um, It's really phenomenal the way that they have the meeting and the way that they set it up. um, Some of the additional activities that kind of wrap around a lot of the research sessions. Um, So yeah, if if you've ever wondered whether or not you know this kind of diversity conversations and culture conversations can happen with research um, at the bench this is the meeting that you need to go to because they'll they'll tell you all about how to do it it's a really um really such a wonderful thing aavmc maintain uh, maintains a presence there as well as avma so there's another shameless plug so <laughs> <laughs> So um, Tiffany, I want to ask you a little bit um, as, a, as a pretty early career faculty member, um, a woman, a woman of color, one of the things that you know um, uh, we talk about or we see in the literature around young faculty, um, particularly um, underrepresented faculty is having um, how do we prevent um, those individuals from paying what we call the diversity tax meaning so you're going to be um, now on the women's research grant Now you're going to go to the diversity committee on Thursdays um, for the college and then the diversity committee for your department and then the diversity committee for (laughs) the university. And then you're going to be on this over thing, this other community thing over for the community that we're going to do with the extension office. How do we (laughs) protect (laughs) young faculty from being overextended and making sure that they're set up to be successful? Sure.
3: Um, So I've been in my position for a little over a year, actually 13 months, as of yesterday. um, So my situation is um, really, really positive on the more positive in, in that I'm fortunate enough to, and our dean is Willie Reed, who fosters a really, truly positive environment that truly contributes to excellence the other side of that is that our university is located in northwestern indiana and um most people they think of why would anybody live in northwestern indiana it's actually a very lovely place to live but um beyond that i have found on my own i haven't i haven't really experienced anything negative um as far as far as being um pulled in, in too many directions Um, But one thing that I've done on my own and I did this intentionally was again to expand my network and that was even beyond um, science, even reaching out to other um, URN faculty members in um, the College of Liberal Arts and um, also in computer science. I met them at different um, events that I had attended on campus just so I can understand how they kind of navigated the landscape. And when I say navigate the landscape, I mean that, so we are in Northwestern Indiana. So we have students that come from, from all over this country, from all over the world for that matter. And um, particularly our um, African-American women um, may sometimes feel isolated quite frankly um, at Purdue. And they're just seeking out someone that wants to, that, to understand them. And that can be, um, you know, when you have uh five or ten students knocking at your door that's another um while important they certainly a time um element so um there is kind of a network on on campus that we kind of um, manage the mentorship of these students together so that nobody has 10 students and somebody has one you know if if mm-hmm. they need that help beyond beyond what's available in their department so i think it again comes back to um, expanding the network. One other resource that I found useful is um, a website actually called the National Center for Faculty Development and Diversity. Um, it's kind of an online community of um, people from um, underrepresented backgrounds or not. Um, it's just a, another environment to kind of think about other issues as they, as they may arise. Um, again, I haven't dealt with any um, specific yet, but just kind of Um, for me to be aware of that others may be dealing with, and also for me to think about um, problem solving if if they were to arise in the future. All right. Great.
0: That's the National Center for Faculty Development and Diversity, right? All right, great. So so we have a question um, from Mm -hmm. Facebook, Um, and so the question is, are there now active recruitment efforts that focus on retaining um, those faculty members that do come through? So um, Um, and, um, Tiffany, you just kind of touched on this a little bit, but are there, um, these, uh, are there kind of retention efforts? And, and so, um, Gary, I'm going to ask for you to maybe weigh in what kinds of things, um, is Texas A&M doing to kind of retain, (laughs) um, you know, young or, or mid-career research faculty?
2: Absolutely. That's a key to the future. Of The faculty is the young faculty coming in to replace people like me when that time comes. I mean, this is a reality and we need to deal with this. So, yes, retention of young faculty. It's not just money, though. It's the environment and the culture. And I would say the feeling, a sense of wanted and needed and appreciated that makes retention, I think, function, in my opinion. And uh, I think Tiffany mentioned that we read there knowing well, creating that environment for retention and the nurturing and the saying that we, we want you to stay, we need you we appreciate what you do, is just as important as some sort of retention package with regard to funds, uh, funding and salaries. That's important, of course, but those two go, go together. Um, our faculty, and, and fortunately, our dean and our upper-level administration now are very active in retention packages for all faculty, and including, of course, underrepresented individuals. So yes, that's an important part for the for the future of our profession at all levels. I think some a question you asked Tiffany is an important one, um at least I mentioned own and own and own about the responsibilities that you might have as a new faculty uh, given your personal culture and that can happen when you're overburdened with all six layers of um chairmans of committees on committees and all of those are important every one of them and and i'm sure you're driven to do those on the other hand science and academia the currency is publication but, uh, really what we do is based on publications. so Balancing that balance of the activities that you have in um, retaining, encouraging, uplifting, networking with underrepresented individuals across the faculty is important. But you personally need to balance uh, all of those with the currency of academia and not your publications. And of course, that's driven by the kind of grants that you have and the funding. You know all of this. But I think for those who are listening, you we are thinking about a career. My is one of those who's, I think, well on the trajectory to develop a long time career. You have to balance your life with what's going on in, in your science, with what's going on in your faculty. Those need to come together so you can have fulfillment, enjoy, and like what you do. It's not a job, it's what you do, and you're inspired by that. I may be off subject here, but I think that balance is is critical for long-term productivity and a sense of enjoyment with what you do and your commitment, whatever it happens to be.
0: Absolutely yeah I actually think that that's a really important point, kind of that work life balance and just kind of life balance and um loving what you do, but also making sure that you have a life to live and um you know this is um, this is something I think key as well for um, the veterinary community as we we know wellness is is a challenge um, for for um, the community and um, certainly there are some additional risk factors there, and so we need to be mindful about trying to find ways of of um seeking balance and practicing some self-care and kind of um, how do you how do you do it all <laughs> right how do you do it all and and and, um, and then continue to enjoy yourself so um, we are coming to the close of our show um we've just got a few minutes left so I have a, um, a couple of questions left but the big thing that I want to know um, Evie, what would you um, as a second year student, um dual degree your um i'm hoping to see you at sackness uh again this this fall um what advice would you give to your student colleagues um as well as those um those newbies those first years that are going to be landing at the doorstep um in just a few months they've just signed you know they've just said this is where i'm going um April 15th just passed they're all excited yay <laughs> they haven't yet um been hit with just you know they they may have read the sticker price but they're not quite depressed about it just yet <laughs> so what <laughs> so what advice would you give them in terms of thinking about um uh exposures um to research careers and and some of your experiences
1: I honestly I think um And I have, I'm a student ambassador here at my school. So I kind of talked about this with some of the younger ones. Um, I definitely told them, and and this is an advice that I also use, is when you get to vet school, you're you're already in. So you know that this is what you're going to do. And I think you should, from the get-go, start seeing what your professors are doing or what is different from the... The faculty that you guys have in each school, and the reason for that is because I, I feel like on first year you just get thrown all this information, anatomy, physiology, um, everything that they can throw at you, essentially. But um, it's important to f- kind of find where is it that you want to go or have an idea what you're gonna do. I've heard from many of my classmates that they are like, oh, I didn't know. I just wanted to go to vet school, but I don't know what I want to do. But If you are active, when you get here, you definitely will find um, what you're looking for or what you're interested in. Interest. I think that's very important. Follow every single interest that you have to the point where you notice, is this for me or not? Because I got here and I was like, well, I'm going to be a public corporate veterinarian and, and I am that in my tracking system. But I was like, well, where do I fit research in? And I started looking at opportunities and just we have an amazing technology and amazing Google that they call it. And you can just Google opportunities, summer opportunities in research. And there's other opportunities at other veterinary schools that you're able to take upon. Um, and I definitely do encourage people to visit conferences. I feel like conferences where the thing that made me um, kind of find what I wanted to do and then I met other people and I networked in those conferences and uh, SAGNAS, for example I've gone to SAMA as well and um, I was able to meet different people from different backgrounds and I think those are relatively good experiences and don't be discouraged better school is hard I cannot emphasize it enough <laughs> But it is doable. In in, I'm a dual degree. I'm seeing the tag prize at the end of the tunnel, but I'm saying that tag prize will be worth it if I get to do what I want it to do. Absolutely.
0: That's great. That's great.
3: It's so important what she said about, you know, thinking how, you know, you may not know what you want to do as a veterinary student. And, you know, it's very normal to come to vet school and, you know, want to do... Equine medicine one day and um, camelid medicine the next. I mean, it's, it's, we have a very exciting field, and but you know, make sure you take advantage of the of the opportunities that are around you. Indeed.
2: Oh, that's so Doctor Adams. Yeah, all these uh, points of view there, which are all good. One thing I wouldn't forget to do is, and this sounds really simple: don't forget to study, because you <clears throat> will you will need to have academic credentials for whichever direction you want to go in science. You will need to have those uh, doc- that documentation that illustrates it. Yes, you can be a good student. At the same time though, it's something you pointed out, Edwin and Tiffany, both of you, is go and find, seek those opportunities. Do not hesitate. Ask your faculty, your professors, you have something I can do, may I work in your laboratory, Seek those opportunities and above all, apply for the Summer Veterinary Student Research Program in your institution. You will have a wonderful opportunity to cross link across your own campus and across the world essentially. I think. Yes, don't forget that one.
1: Yeah. And also be persistent. I I do want to say this because I've had it so many times. Be very persistent in the sense of like, if they don't answer your emails, don't feel bad. I get so many emails as a student. And it's incredible that I'm able to keep up with them. Um, But if you have that faculty inside your building, then go stop by their office. They're probably in there. Um, But don't get I think the one thing I tell my friends and I tell all the young ones, do not get discouraged if they don't answer your email back because you have no idea how many emails. I've seen how many Lisa's is emails and I do not want to be in that position. Um, and I have like um, here at my school, like I, I do send emails, but I happen to always pop out and into my mentor from the MPH. I pop in her office, be like, hi, I had a question for you. Um, because it's they know they're here. Like all of these professors, it doesn't matter what school it is, they're there for the students. They're there for you. So if you're a student, don't hesitate to kill them. They won't eat you. Um, <laughs> but definitely do not get discouraged because they did not answer your email in 24 hours. Believe me, it's hard.
0: <laughs> I'm gonna send that particular clip to my to my daughter, but um yeah, <laughs> this is really good advice. <laughs> And um, as Evie has mentioned, our our faculty apparently do not practice cannibalism. (laughs) She's mentioned that a couple of times. Not Not today. Not today anyway. Go see them. Um, Don't rely on just technology, but stop one by. So any other pearls of of wisdom um, for the masses? Dr. uh, Dr. Gary Adams, uh, Tiffany Lyle, any other
2: words of wisdom? I think like the future, you're creating your own future, your career. You're creating the future for the veterinary profession. So you're in charge of creating that future. The challenge is yours. I dare you to check to take that on and go for it.
3: Veterinary medicine is such an amazing field and the fact that we bring so much to the to the research table, to research questions is really I mean, I am just so excited
0: about every
3: day awesome
0: well thank you each um, for spending the last hour with me and with everyone who's watching um, I really appreciate it I look forward to to continuing the discussion um, uh, on a future show kind of talking con- continuing the discussion about diversity and research um, and veterinary research specifically so thank you each of you it was fun thank you
2: so much for having me
0: all right. So this has been another episode of diversity and inclusion on air sponsored by the AABMC. Um Be sure to check out this episode and others on YouTube, our YouTube page, which is diversity um, and inclusion on air on YouTube, as well as finding our audio versions of the show on your uh, iTunes, Stitcher or whatever podcast app you may be using. Um, we are coming to the close of, of season two for the show. We have a few more um, surprises in store for the last couple of episodes, and then we'll be taking the summer off um, to prep for season three. So thank you so much for another episode and have a great evening.